today is John's account from the Gospel of John of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in John 12. John 12, verses uh, 12 through 19. So let's pay careful attention to the reading of God's inspired word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to open it to us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would impress it deep upon our hearts, that we would understand more of who Jesus is, and that we would believe in him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I've always loved the story of Robin Hood. It's kind of a classic, isn't it? Why do we like it so much? Well, there's so much good stuff there. You know, you got a renegade, but he's like good. He only steals to help poor people, so the story goes. Um, There's a number of things, but one of the things I've always found most fascinating about it is the two kings that you have. You have good King Richard, who's gone away, and then you have bad King John, uh, who is such a bad king that, you know, we got a landmark document of uh, human rights just because people couldn't put up with him. Um, You know, it's the story of which king are you going to serve, which when you think about it is kind of interesting in the Middle Ages because usually you don't get to choose your king. But actually, there were lots of periods when there were multiple kings to choose from. And the question was, which king would you choose? Would you choose to serve King John, like the Sheriff of Nottingham, or will you choose to wait for the true king, King Richard? Well, our passage today is also a little bit about what kind of king you're going to choose to serve. Only there's only one king, but a bunch of different versions about who he is. Uh, just to set the scene a little, uh, John has told us that there's basically a bounty on Jesus' head. After he raised Lazarus from the dead in the last chapter, the Pharisees have decided he's too dangerous. And so they have literally put out the word that if people see Jesus, let them know and they'll arrest him. Uh, In a previous episode, Jesus had actually snuck into Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths precisely because of this kind of surveillance. Uh, And so people are asking, is Jesus going to come? It's Passover. Uh, the Jewish people were supposed to come to Jerusalem, and there's rumors going around, is Jesus going to show up? Um, the different Gospels will tell this story in a slightly different way, but the way John tells it, he focuses especially on people's reactions 
to Jesus' entry into the city here. And so as we look at this text, I I want us to look at three different groups of people who react to Jesus. First, we have the crowds. Then I'm going to look at the Pharisees. And finally, we'll look at the disciples. The crowds, the Pharisees, and the disciples. So the first group of people who react to Jesus are the crowds. And I do mean crowds in the plural. There are actually two distinct crowds here, two different groups of people that John identifies. Jesus has been hanging out in Bethany with Lazarus and his family, and it seems that one of the crowds is a group of people that actually come with him from Bethany to Jerusalem. And then the other group is a crowd that comes out of the city, and they're the ones with the palm branches and the singing. And it actually seems like the first crowd that comes uh, stirs up the second one. Uh, there's a bit of a difference in, between some manuscripts in verse 17, so it's not clear whether the crowd that comes with Jesus was there when he rose, raised Lazarus from the dead, or if, as I think is more likely, it's the crowd in verse 9 that it talks about who actually come to see Lazarus. So they, maybe they weren't there when Jesus raised Lazarus, but they've gone to Bethany because they've heard about it. And John tells us lots and and lots of people are coming to believe in Jesus because they can just go talk to Lazarus and find out what he's done. But either way, the point is that uh, coming perhaps ahead and with and around Jesus is a large group of people that can witness to the fact that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And they are witnessing, and they're stirring up this massive excitement in the whole city. Well, what is the significance of the crowd's actions? Why are they waving palm branches and singing from Psalm 118? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Well, first of all, why palm branches? Palm branches were associated with a feast, sometimes called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, when God's people would go out in the wilderness and sort of construct little shelters. It was like they were camping, kind of like our youth did recently, camping on the church property. Um, But this wasn't the Feast of Booths. Rather, this practice has sort of become uh, associated with other different times of the year. And it developed some new important associations through the Hanukkah story. I don't know if you know the Hanukkah story very well, but you really should know it to understand the Bible and the New Testament. Um, Actually, John uses a rare word for palm branch here. It's actually an Egyptian word that was borrowed into Greek. And the reason he does it may be that it's precisely the word for palm branches used in the book of 1 Maccabees 13. And I'm sure you all know what happens in 1 Maccabees 13. That's when Simon Maccabee recaptures the citadel of Jerusalem and everybody celebrates that finally the last dirty Gentiles have been kicked out of the city. So I think already we maybe get a little bit of idea of what's going on for the crowd as they're waving these palm branches around. Maybe this new King Jesus is here to kick out the Romans. And then we have the people calling out Hosanna, which just means God save us, or just means save us. But what kind of salvation are they looking for? And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But what kind of king are they looking for? Maybe they're thinking of another verse in that same psalm. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. 
There's actually another piece of evidence that John drops here that the crowds might not be approaching Jesus in quite the right sort of way. I mean, all this focus on the raising of Lazarus exposes what's really exciting about Jesus, and that is the signs that he does, the miracles. John emphasizes this in verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And you know, that might sound innocent enough. I mean, Jesus' miracles sound really cool. Who wouldn't want to be there to see them? But if you look through John's gospel, you start to realize he kind of has a pet peeve around people who are more interested in Jesus' signs than actually who Jesus is. John actually puts right at the end of his gospel that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's almost like the whole reason John wrote his gospel was that he was seeing a bunch of people who were really interested in Jesus' miracles, but weren't taking the step from those miracles to believing in who Jesus really was. It's something that shows up throughout the gospel. Uh, Just take John 6, the feeding of the 5,000 as the example. Perhaps you all remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus does this great miracle where he feeds a bunch of people with like one kid's lunch. Um, But then Jesus sneaks away. And actually John says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people see this powerful sign, and they start making plans for Jesus' political future that Jesus isn't too keen about. So he, like, sneaks away, and he sails across the sea to Galilee, but the crowds, like, they chase him, and they cross the sea, and what happens when they finally catch up with Jesus? Uh, Well, first of all, Jesus tells them that they're only really excited about physical bread, but they aren't really interested in the eternal bread that he has to offer. And then he talks for a long time about how his body is true bread, and everybody has to eat his flesh to live forever. And the crowd's really disappointed by all of this. Many of them turn back and actually stop following him. They liked the signs, but they weren't so into what Jesus actually has to say. And they don't really understand who he is and what he's all about. Well, here in chapter 12, the same sort of thing happens. You know, it seems to the Pharisees that the whole world is following Jesus. Um, It's not too surprising, given that he literally just raised a man from the dead. Uh, It's pretty impressive. How are the Romans going to fight us if Jesus can just keep respawning our soldiers like a game of Star Wars Battlefronts? But then Jesus has to go and ruin the whole thing by opening his mouth. Later in the chapter, he starts talking about how he has to die and be lifted up to draw all people to himself. All people feels like he's losing the plot of kicking out the Romans a little bit. Surely not them too. Jesus is even hanging out with Greeks, which also doesn't seem uh, like he's got the same political goal. And the crowd, they're just not having it. They say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? A dying Messiah 
It's not the kind of king that they want. Verse 27 sums it up. Though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And really, John put this all the way back in the thesis paragraph for his book. Um, John's maybe following better, better advice from his English teacher than Paul was last week. He puts it all, all, all in the thesis paragraph. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So how do we, how do we apply this point to our lives today? Well, I suppose we could ask, are you focused on signs? But, but let's think a little bit about what would that mean for us? We're not, we don't really have a problem with any Romans around here. Um, the kinds of things we might be interested in are different than the crowds. Um, still, I think it's easy to be tempted to think only about what Jesus can do for you. Uh, Jesus can help you do a better job at your job. Maybe Jesus can help you get your finances under control or kick an addiction to alcohol. Maybe Jesus can make your marriage better. Maybe Jesus can help you figure out how to get your kids under control and put them on the path to a good life. And none of those things are bad. And following Jesus' teaching really does help us in all of those areas. But is what you can get from Jesus eclipsing believing in Jesus himself? Has it become all about the things that you want Jesus to do on your agenda? I think we should probably particularly apply this point to the political realm. Uh, after all, these people have a very clear political goal, and they drop Jesus once he's not helping them engage it. And I think it would be easy in a place, perhaps, where uh, the church might feel under attack. And a lot in the surrounding culture is against us that we could become focused on accomplishing something politically, shoring up our position. And listen, it's not wrong for Christians to engage politically with the world. And it can even be a difficult balance. How do we engage politically? Without becoming compromised uh, in a worldly attitude to power. But one thing I'll say here is that we can at least focus on our heart attitude. Ask yourself, when you're thinking about politics, are you primarily being driven by fear or anger? Or are you being driven by love and peace? I don't think there's anything more powerful than being rooted in a heavenly kingdom and being able to act for good in an earthly one on that basis. But that would require us to have our faith in Jesus and who he is and the fact that he is on the throne. So those are some things to think about and see what the Holy Spirit might be revealing in our hearts. For now, though, let's move on to the second group, the Pharisees. The Pharisees, um, they've had it out for Jesus since day one. Uh, actually, there's a few of them that like Jesus, but they kind of keep quiet. They're keeping their heads down right now. Most of them, most of the religious leaders among the Pharisees, they see Jesus as a threat to their power. And you know, I can't have some sympathy for them. They see this charismatic leader. They see the people rallying around him. The people are idiots. 
Don't they know that if they hail Jesus as king, it will trigger a Roman reprisal? That they'll endanger this balance of power we leaders have been working so hard to establish? Um, and, you know, perhaps it's an attitude, you know, in this town, at least some people can sympathize with a bit, you know, like a big populist movement just destroying the political balance that we, we've just created. Ah, so frustrating. And, you know, in the previous chapter, John actually records them saying, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If this keeps going on, we're not going to be able to have our nation anymore. But even if this is realistic politics, it's hard not to hear the self-focus in there as well. Our place is under threat. Uh, here in this chapter, they say, you see that you are gaining nothing. Well, actually, literally what they say is, you see that you are doing no good. I think it's kind of like an ironic moment that John is putting in there, um, because from his perspective, the Pharisees are very much up to no good, indeed. But what they mean by it is that they feel powerless. Their power is threatened. Still, is it not a little weird that this witness to Jesus literally raising a man from the dead doesn't shake their commitment to their cause at all? Uh, even as their whole plan is seeming to fall apart, their reaction is not repentance but just to burrow into fear and despair. Nothing is going to make them question their ideology. Nothing is going to make them give up their plot to kill Jesus. And I think passages like this are some of the passages that personally I find the scariest in the Bible, the ones that depict this, this human willfulness in refusing to repent and refusing to change course. And, you know, the crowd, the crowd, they're committed to a path towards violence as well. Perhaps we could say that they're motivated by passion, a sort of fervor and nationalistic spirit. But the Pharisees, they're driven by a cold rationalization. They're the ones who are, able to, who are supposedly ethical teachers who are able to sit there and say, maybe it would be better for one man to die unjustly if... It protects the whole nation. They're following this cold, rationalistic ethics and justifying evil in that way. Either way, we see two different models, two different models of moving towards violence. Um, but in the case of the Pharisees, it's a warning to all of us that only repentance brings safety from this kind of stubbornness in the human heart. Only a life of repentance can truly make us safe from going down that path. So that's the Pharisees. The last group we have to look at here is the disciples. These are the people who've been with Jesus the whole time. And we might be a little surprised about what we learn about them here. Maybe we expect to hear that at least these dedicated disciples are with it. In the crowds, they may be fickle and sign-obsessed, but Jesus' disciples who've left everything to follow him, surely they will know what's up. But nope. The disciples are portrayed as mostly clueless in this passage, at least for now. John says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, 
Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Jesus is actually going to explain the situation a bit more in the next few chapters. As he's been saying, he has to die and has to be raised again. And only when he's glorified, raised in glory and seated at the Father's right hands, then he's going to be able to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, he's going to enable the disciples to really understand who Jesus was and what his teaching was all about. I think it's important to dwell on this a little bit, especially for understanding who the Holy Spirit is a bit. What would the religion of Jesus have looked like if he had never died on the cross? Uh, What if he had pursued the option of just going all Rambo on the Romans? One consequence is clear. Nobody would ever understand his teaching. Because what Jesus came to teach us is not a life we can receive simply by our own power. As he says earlier in the gospel to Nicodemus, you can't receive it by flesh and blood. You need the Holy Spirit to give you a gift of new birth. And that Holy Spirit can only be sent if Jesus dies and rises again in glory. You know, the apostles are going to have a special kind of authority in the church, and that's because they've spent all this time with Jesus, learning from him. But without the gift of the Spirit, all of that training is useless. That much at least is clear from the fact that here we are at the end of the gospel and they still don't get it. But after Jesus sends the Spirit, suddenly everything he taught them is going to come alive in a new way. I find this all kind of encouraging. And if these are the future apostles, then maybe there's hope for me too. Uh, Even though when I seek to live in the way Christ taught, I frequently turn out to be clueless, to, to bungle it, to fail to actually bring truth and love into my interactions with other people in a wise way. Uh, Jesus didn't enroll us in his school because we're the best and the brightest. Sorry if you thought that that was the case. Rather, we need the work of the Holy Spirit, which is often a gradual work where the lessons that we thought we had learned end up coming back again and again, and we realize we didn't learn the half of it the first time. But what is it that the Spirit taught the disciples later? What did they remember when they looked back at this? Well, quite simply, it's that Jesus had chosen to ride on a young donkey. But not just that he did that, but specifically the Holy Spirit connected that event with a passage from the Bible. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Note the word humble here. Now, a donkey was a fine mode of royal transport. There's nothing necessarily humble about it. It probably didn't strike the crowd as out of key with their vision of a king at all. But if we see it as a reference to this verse, then we know that Jesus is coming in humility. He's going to turn out to be a different kind of king than the crowds expect. And with that, even the other symbols can take on a different tone. The palms might be less about a victorious general defeating the Romans and maybe more like the original meaning of the Feast of Booths, 
which means meeting God in the wilderness, living with him in makeshift shelters. After all, John opened his gospel by pointing out that Jesus himself is God dwelling with us, even tabernacling with us is the word he uses. And that means that Jesus is walking a wilderness path to be with us, a path of suffering. And his body is the temple that's going to be torn down to make a way for us to come to God. And then there's Psalm 118. Maybe the relevant verse is less about cutting off the Gentiles in the Lord's name, and maybe we should look at verse 22 instead. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus has come to be rejected, and it's through that that salvation will come. Again, the disciples understood none of this at the time. They were having as much of a difficult time with Jesus dying and rising again as pretty much anybody else. But that's because Jesus didn't first and foremost just come with a teaching we can understand if we're smart enough or work hard enough. Rather, he came to die and rise again so that we poor clueless disciples could come to know God's love. So how should we apply this passage to ourselves this morning? You know, everybody we see in this passage is, is really into their religion. The Pharisees study the scripture relentlessly. The crowd, they love the symbolism and pageantry. But they're twisting the symbols and the words of scripture towards what they want the Messiah to be. And the best we can say for the disciples is that they just don't understand anything yet. But there's one person in the story who does understand, and that person is Jesus. He is the one who has to bear the weight of what the scriptures truly mean, that he's the king who must die again before he can rise in glory. He knows that he has to walk the path of taking all the cruelty of an unjust death upon himself in order to save his people. You know, back in John 6, remember when the crowd got fed up with Jesus and they all left? Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and says to them, do you want to go away as well? Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, Peter might not get much. But in that moment, there's one thing he understands. Jesus is the one it is all about. He has the words of eternal life. And so beyond all of the signs and the miracles, what matters to Peter is that he believes in Jesus, the person. And so this passage calls us to believe in Jesus this morning. Not just when it makes sense. Not just when Jesus is popular with the crowds, and it seems likely that following him will bring us physical bread or further our political ends, but also when Jesus says difficult things and rules as the king who turns our expectations of what our worldly system of glory looks like upside down. But as difficult as it often is for us to understand Jesus and the things he says, I think our passage brings us great comfort today. In a world where humans twist and distort the word of God, 
Jesus single-handedly guarantees its meaning. Jesus is the Word made flesh, and nobody, not the crowds, not the Pharisees, not Satan and all his demons could stop Jesus from accomplishing God's will. He entered Jerusalem with his face set like a flint to go to the cross, to give up his life that we might be made whole. If there's any understanding of who Jesus is and what he taught in the church, if any of that happens here this morning, it's because of what Jesus has done. It's because he died and is risen and glorified. He's seated at the Father's right hand and because Jesus is reigning in his church even now by his Holy Spirit. Left to our own devices, we would always distort and reject the light of God's truth. But the good news is that we have not been left alone. The Spirit broods over us, gently unbending the grip of sin upon our hearts and bringing Christ's kingdom a little more every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for who Jesus is. He's not the king that we wanted, but the king that we needed. The king who gave up his life and died for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know this Jesus today. We pray that you would help us to learn more about him every day, and we place ourselves in complete dependence upon you and your Spirit's work in that. It's not something we can accomplish alone. And so we pray that you would be at work a little more this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.